Well, this morning we're in the book of Second John together. Second John. And I tried to count and keep track, so this is our 24th week in the letters of John together. So if you've not been with us the last 24 weeks, uh, you might be coming into kind of a conversation that we've been having for quite some time now, since uh, January. And, but we're looking at a, a collection of, of text here, or verses this morning, uh, that have great significance and impact on our lives, and I'm excited to read them and share them with you this morning. Well, let's look together at verses 9 through 11. So this is 2 John, verses 9 through 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. All right, so a text we have before us this morning, and and it may be to you that when we read that text, that seems a little harsh. That that seems uh, kind of judgmental and and not loving and, many would say, Christian-like to shun to not even greet them, to not welcome them in, to not let them take part in what you're doing, to not welcome someone who needs a home into your home, why would you ever do that? We're told specifically not to do this in the Word this morning. Why might that be? What was the history, the context surrounding such a passage? Does it have any implication on us this morning? What does this mean? He begins by telling us that Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, everyone who goes on ahead, everyone who goes beyond bounds, limits, set, everyone who moves in front, someone who goes too far, someone who runs ahead, each one of these is beyond the bounds of of what? What, what, what? What are they leaving the bounds of? That's immediately what we need to be considering together. Everyone who goes on ahead and leaves the bounds, bounds of what? Everyone who goes on ahead, everyone who goes too far, everyone who leaves this, who leaves what? The teaching of Christ. Everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't maintain a proper belief, the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Does not have God. This could mean two things could mean one, it could mean the teaching that comes from Jesus, right? The teaching of Jesus. Or it could mean the teaching concerning Jesus, about Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. See how it could mean, could mean either thing? What does this mean? Everyone who goes beyond the bounds of what Jesus taught or everyone who goes beyond the bounds of the teaching concerning Jesus Christ. Which is it? Well, I think it's pretty easy for us to, uh, to understand that it is both, but what did John have in mind? Two specific issues. You just need to glance back up in your text to verses 4 through 6. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, that already kind of has bounds or limits to it, isn't it? There is something that is the truth and there is something that's not the truth. So everyone who goes outside of the truth has gone ahead, 
has gone too far, has gone outside the bounds of the truth. So now some of your children are walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning. And what is that commandment? That we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, excuse me, so that you should walk in it. So the first thing that John has in mind here, going beyond the bounds of something, well, it certainly has to do with Christians loving one another. The children of God should be loving the children of God. If in these past 24 weeks you have not picked up on that yet, there might be an issue. There might be a problem. All the children of God should be loving the children of God. So if we're not loving the children of God, we've got some sanctifying work to do. But if you don't have any love at all for the children of God, this is an indicator that you yourself are not a child of God. And this is what John has been telling us. But there's another issue, and I think uh, it's more directly in context because it's in verse 7. So just look at verse 7. So we have the command of love, but then we have something else. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, and here's what those deceivers are, are doing. They're not confessing the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So there is something that some people are saying about Jesus that is not correct. And they're trying to deceive the church into believing something about Jesus that's not right. There is something about Jesus that is correct, that is according to the truth, but there is something that they're teaching about Jesus that is not correct and is not according to the truth, and those are the deceivers. And so John is wanting us to be careful and to do what? Watch yourself. That's what we talked about last week. And what you believe has great impact on the way you behave. True. So we need to be careful about what we're believing. And in specifically being addressed here is what you're believing about Jesus Christ himself. So when he gets here and he says, everyone who goes on ahead outside of these bounds and does not abide in this teaching of Christ and who he is, but instead they're saying that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver. They do not have God. These do not have God. He said this in 1 John 2, starting in verse 22. Just listen to what he said. Listen to how similar it is. Who is the liar but the one that denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So there it is. If you have the proper understanding and teaching concerning Christ, then this means that you have both the Father and the Son. To not abide in the teaching of Christ means you do not have the Son, and if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Does all this make sense? They're, they're all just so intricately linked together, but isn't this how John operates? Just remember this. Seems like you're saying the same thing over and over in different ways. Right. That's what John's doing. He's telling us the same thing over and over in different ways. This is the way that John the Apostle communicates. And so this is why we're hearing it on repeat. But we have something set in front of us this morning that, that is a little different. He's giving us something else here. All these who go on ahead and don't abide in the teaching of Christ don't have God. However, those who abide in the teaching have both the Father 
and the Son. So the connection here about not having the Father and the Son is proper doctrine concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back and you look at church history, which many of you know, what were the first issues debated in Christian theology? They were concerning the person, Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who is Jesus? We call these Christological heresies, right? These are the debates. Who is Jesus? And you have to understand, too, that the questions that were asked need specific answers. And as time goes by, what happens? We start asking more specific questions. And so because we've never answered those questions before, all of a sudden we need to formulate answers to those questions. And so what we see happening throughout Christian history, questions being asked and answers being given and people debating about the answers. And so what we have is kind of a, a timeline of things. But here are some of the things that were discussed about Jesus. Who is Jesus? First, that's a pretty basic question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? If you've never asked that question, you've got a problem. We all have our initial discovery of who is Jesus really? What is the nature of his existence? What is his relationship to the Father? What is his relationship to the Spirit? What is his relationship to humanity? What is his relationship to the human nature? What about his earthly life? What about his will? Does Jesus have one will, two wills? What about his crucifixion? What happened there? What about his resurrection? Did Jesus sin? Could Jesus have sinned? And glory, where is Jesus now? What is he doing? There's a lot of questions that we begin to ask, and these questions have been asked. But sometimes difficult questions are asked, and sometimes the correct answer or the answer that doesn't seem right to us, or maybe there's an answer that doesn't immediately present itself to us, we do something. I, I just want you to think with me for a second. Has there ever been a time when you have asked a big question? It was a big question to you. And you believe that, that Christianity could not offer the, the right answer. Maybe you think Christianity doesn't have an answer to that. And you want to know, this is a big question for you and how your life and how you operate and how you're thinking about God and the church, your salvation. And you're thinking, I have this big question that I'm asking people. I, there's so many stories of people coming to me and saying, well, I asked the pastor or I asked the church or I, I studied this book. I looked throughout the Bible. I couldn't find answer to this. And of course, what's the thing you do now? Whether you Google search it. You know, I Googled it and some people say this and some people say that. Right, that's how Google works. But, you know, People are on the search for answers. Have you been on the search for answers about something? Something in Christian theology, something about Jesus, who he is, how he operates, who God is, your salvation, something in the Christian life, and you came to the conclusion, maybe on purpose, maybe on accident, Christianity doesn't have this answer for me. And so unfortunately, many times what we do, we tend to do, is fill in the gaps of our theology with something else that seems to make sense to you theological gaps. I don't know how to answer that question. It seems like Christianity can't answer that question. Nobody can answer that. Nobody knows the answer. And, but, oh, they have an answer. If you were with us for our study through worldviews, we know that many Christians right now are finding that, they, that Christianity doesn't have the right answers. 
And, and so they're going to other things and, and other religions and other philosophies to fill in the gaps that Christianity has left them. Many are going toward mysticism or Eastern religions, Buddhism, and saying they have great answers that Christianity doesn't have. And you fill in the gaps with other things. Now you say, but I'm not doing that. I don't fill in the gaps. The Bible fills in all my gaps. Right, okay, I'm with you. But in reality, we all have gaps that we fill with something that is not the truth at times. If we always filled in all of our gaps and all of our questions with perfect theology from the Bible, that would be a pretty amazing thing that you've done. We need to have a conversation. I want to know how you did that. Because what that first means is that you understand it perfectly so as to be able to find all the answers you're looking for and apply them to your life. Now, this is a difficult task, but it is a task, it's a journey that we're all on together, yes? Sometimes we fill these gaps with what we think is right to us. Sometimes we fill these gaps with previously held beliefs before you came into Christianity. Sometimes you fill these gaps with other religions and philosophies. What were these Christians of this particular time in this particular place, what were they doing to fill in their gaps? Because this is the issue. They were going to other philosophies and systems of thought to fill in the gaps. What was the gap for them? Who is Jesus and what was his divine nature? How do we understand Jesus as God? How do we understand him as man? And they, so there's this group of Christians that didn't quite know how to answer this question. But there was another group of people who had an answer for them. They said, oh, let me tell you how it works. There was an earthly man, Jesus, and there was a heavenly man, Christ. And at his baptism, the heavenly man, Christ, came and merged with the human man. And then when he was about to go to his crucifixion, the heavenly Christ left the earthly man, Jesus. And so there you have it. God was never born in the flesh, but instead came and merged with the man Jesus and left before his crucifixion. Why? Because God can't be put to death. He's God after all. So there you go. There's your answer. And some of the Christians went, I like this. I like this. Good job for thinking of that. Great job. That was known as Serenthianism. A guy named Serenthus was going all around and spreading this thought, and it was a mixture of Judaism of Gnosticism and Christianity. And he mixed them all up in a big pot and said, here are all the answers to all the things that we would ever want to know. I've got it figured out. And there were groups of people, Christians, gatherings like ours that said, we like your answers. Good job. And they accepted them as true. However, the issue is, it wasn't right. It wasn't true. They said that the Christ did not come, how? in the flesh. No, no, no. The heavenly man is heavenly. He came and dwelt with the flesh for a time and then went back up to heaven. But no, is that what we believe? Or was he born in human flesh of a virgin? Is that what we believe? Is that what the scriptures teach? So we need to be careful and not be like these groups and say, you have the answers and this makes sense to us. And so we're going to believe what you've said because you've filled in all of our gaps perfectly. I hope you can already see the road we're headed down. Ancient Rome was a 
which? A pluralistic society or a monolithic society? Meaning, were there many worldviews active or was there just one dominant worldview? Well, there were many worldviews, right? Because there were many religious systems. And so, in a pluralistic society where there are many different options of how to answer life's big questions, what do you do? You pick and choose the ones that make sense to you. Do we live in a pluralistic society or a monolithic society? Is there one main worldview, how everybody answers all of life's questions the same? Or do we live in a world where many different people are answering life's big questions in many different ways? So for us, there is a danger that we might be like those who fill in what are to us possible gaps in our theology. We feel like Christianity doesn't have the answer, and so we take from different systems of thought and fill in. But the issue with that is that we're in danger of going beyond the bounds of what is correct. And everyone who goes beyond these bounds, specifically with who Jesus is and what he accomplished, does not have God. There was a man named Tertullian, and he was living in the end of the second century, and he was an apologist. He was a theologian and apologist, and, and he said something that has kind of become famous, and it's uh, the title of today's sermon. I have it on the screen for you. He said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has the academy to do with the church, and what have heretics to do with Christians? What, what does that mean? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Where is Athens? It's in Greece. The center of, well, for him, the idea of the Greek or Hellenistic world, right? What was Alexander the Great's uh, goal? To bring the Greek culture to all of his empire. It's what we call the Hellenized world. So he was bringing Greek culture. Now, for Tertullian, he was looking at Athens, capital city, and saying, there is Athens, Greek culture, Greek customs, Greek philosophy, Greek thought. What is that doing in Jerusalem? And what is Jerusalem? God's place. That's where God's people are. That's what, what, what is Greek thought doing in the place of God? And that's why he says, what does the academy have to do with the church? So he's saying, what does secular thought have to do with the people who are in the church? And then he's saying, what do heretics have to do with Christians? And he's widening this gap. He's saying, don't you see? Heretics are not Christians. It's kind of why they're called heretics. So he's saying, what does Greek philosophy have to do with God's word? What does Greek philosophy have to do with what is true? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And you might be thinking, we don't live there. We don't live in ancient Rome. None of these things are true for us. But I hope that you can see how incredibly relevant the concept is for us today. Incredibly relevant. If you did not know this, you live in Rome. Here are some of the things that John said in uh, the letters to the seven churches, which the first couple chapters of Revelation. He said, to the church in Pergamum, which is in Asia Minor, which is where John was writing these letters to. So same, same area, same groups of churches. Here's what John was saying. There are some in your church in Pergamum that hold to the teachings of Balaam. 
and it wasn't good. It's not good. Why do you hold? I have this against you that you hold to their teachings and you shouldn't. Again to the church in Pergamum. Some of you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That's not good. To the church in Thyatira, they held to the teachings of Jezebel and they were being condemned for it. So what you have is churches spread throughout Asia Minor who were holding to contrary beliefs, filling in their Christian theology with the, with the beliefs and thoughts, customs, and philosophies of their day. Do you think that the Christian church today, specifically in the United States, is filling in Christian theology with philosophies of the world? You confident? If you're not confident in that, your eyes have not been opened to the reality of what's happening in the American church. It is everywhere. Is it new? It's not new. This has been happening from the beginning. I know that so many things are on a fast track in our culture and our society. I know. I, I feel it too. But we can't be thinking that all this stuff is brand new. This is not new. This is how it's been. All of these things coming into the church, all these wonderful ideas that seem so great to the masses, and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with believing them? What's wrong with studying this over here? What's wrong with that? Well, we've come so far as humanity, and we can't accept that new teaching? That's great. In theological studies, you call these people critical scholars. Not that it's critically important, but they're being critical of what has been said. Critical of history, critical of theology, critical of the Bible, critical of readings. And what they're doing is they're backing up and saying, I don't think that what we've been looking at here is right. Let's reevaluate this. Hebrews 13, 8 and 9, listen to what it says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he was addressing a specific issue right there, sacrificed, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. So what is he saying is the principle that we're taking with us, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the same. As we've gone all throughout history, Jesus has stayed the same, which means our beliefs about him should be the same. So if our beliefs about Jesus are changing, we've got an issue because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why are we changing what we understand about the man Jesus? And it's not just now that wants to change our understanding about Jesus. This has been happening from the beginning. This, is be, this has been happening all the way back to the beginning when Jesus came. People were saying, you're not who you say you are. I know where Jesus is. I have this idea about him. We need to be careful not to go outside the bounds of who Jesus really is. Do you see the importance? And do you see that this has been happening for a very long time? Strange and diverse teachings, meaning various kinds of teachings and foreign teachings. That's what strange means there, foreign what are we to do? Acts 2.42 says, you know, you know Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to what? To every philosophy that they could get their hands on. They devoted themselves to learning about each and everything and every thought and concept so that they could come up with maybe what God is doing in this world. 
Or did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Or listen to what it says in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While, and here's what's happening in the meantime, evil people and imposters are going to go on from bad to what? To better. Or to worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. Are we surprised about the condition of the world that we live in? Don't be so surprised about the condition of the world that we live in. Don't be surprised that we see so many beliefs in Christians, think people who have called themselves Christians, and you believe that? I know that that's an issue for many in this room. How can you call yourself a Christian and do that or believe that? They used to be so solid, I hear people say. They used to be so solid in their faith, and now they're believing or doing this. Right. Because it's a danger that we are warned against. We've been told on repeat Do not believe in these strange and diverse teachings. It's been a temptation for the church from the beginning. And we have to be protected from it. We have to be warned against it. What's one thing that we do? We're devoting ourselves then to the apostles' teachings. We're devoting ourselves to what God has said in his word. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. And what you have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And all scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We need the Word of God. We need to seek it out. We need to be devoted to it because it is what keeps us in these bounds. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, knowing this beforehand, that's that, that we're, be prepared. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Are we those who are taking care not to be carried away with how people twist the scriptures to say something that scripture is not actually saying? Are we being careful? Are we on guard? Are we watching ourselves? Is this what we're practicing? I suppose I'll stop and I'll say, how can we be a people who are on guard against what is false if we are not acquainted with what is true? How often are you devoting yourselves to what the Word of God says? You were with me up until this point, I think. We were, we were all, yeah, we're defending the truth. I'm not quite sure what it is we're defending, but I'm with it. Whatever the Bible says is good. I'm not sure what all is in there. You know, that's what you're for, you know. You help us to know what, what's, what's all there. So if you have a question, I'll just come to you about it, you know. 
we are accountable to the word and we are accountable as individuals. We need to be in the word knowing what it says so that when something comes, when a wind of doctrine comes our way, I'm prepared to not let that move me. I am solid. I am stable. That cannot push me off my feet of what I know the scriptures actually say. Are you confident in what the scriptures say? And here, I mean, here is the wonderful truth about a community that believes the word of God to be true is that one person, a wind, is able to blow over, but when we all come behind you and hold you up, that's not moving you anywhere. So I suppose one side of this is, are you helping those around you in this community stand firm to the things we know are true? Because that's a big part of the community of faith, is that we help each other to stand when winds of doctrine and strange, diverse teachings come our way, we help each other to stand. If we help each other to be moved by that wind, we've got a problem, which is what was happening in these churches. A strange teaching was coming in, and they heard it, and they said, that sounds good. And they all were saying, that sounds good to me. Kevin, that sounds good to you. Oh, great, yeah. Yeah, Lynn, that sounds good to you. Yeah, great, awesome. Calvin's on board. Hey, we got a movement here. We're believing this now. Everybody come with us. And guess what? Here they come. But now if I say, I don't know, I've been listening to this guy over here and he's got, he's got some good things to say. And I say, what, listen to this, Kevin. And you say, I don't know. I say, listen again. I think you need to hear this. I think this is the thing we've been missing. And then Kevin says, no. And he keeps me from being moved and you keep me from being moved. And then likewise, when you hear, I keep you from being moved. Do you see how that community works? We protect one another to hold firm that we might not go outside of these bounds, that we might walk according to the truth because what we believe impacts the way we behave, yes? We need to believe properly that we might be acting properly, not to earn our salvation, but because we have it. He created us for good works that we should walk in them. What are they? We need to know biblical truth. We need to walk in biblical truth. Let's guard one another. That's your job. That's, that, we're supposed to do that with one another. Practice it. Be in the word. Be invested in the word. Know what it says. And come alongside one another to help them stand firm in it. We should be doing that together. 1 Corinthians 4.6 I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you might learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That you might learn not to go beyond what is written. Now, it's interesting that this is Paul talking. He's talking about a guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos was from Alexandria. Alexandria was a center uh, for many uh, of these new thoughts and philosophies. It was prized for all the thoughts that it had. We've all heard of the library in Alexandria, right? It's because they wanted to bring in all these new teachings that they might be the most wonderful thinkers in the world. And Apollos was from there. And what he was saying is, we should not go outside the bounds of what we know to be true. I reject that. that that's powerful. That's, that's impactful for us. You have a wealth of information at your fingertips on the TV, on the radio, on the internet, especially in Google, podcast, whatever you, whatever you have access to, you have all the world's information right there greater than the library of Alexandria. 
You have every philosophy that's ever been recorded right there. And if you want to believe it, if you want to mix it with your Christianity, simply look it up and bring it into what you believe. Do you see how easy it is? And the more you watch certain people, the more you listen to certain people, and you say, well, they're doing it. Well, they're believing it. Well, this is how they understand it. And we're led astray. But we're not to be led astray by strange and diverse teachings. There was a tendency at the time to reject the physical reality of Christ. Okay? That was the tendency at their time. Jesus Christ, the God-man, did not come in the flesh no, that's not for God. And the reason being is because Gnosticism had this kind of teaching that the material world was bad and that the, the spiritual world, the immaterial world was good. So how could God, who is good, ever be part of what is bad, the flesh? So naturally, they divided the two and the physical world was kind of bad, so they wanted to reject the reality that God became flesh. Because flesh, bad. Anything you look and see and touch, bad. There's a a, a real world that we can't see or touch. That's the good place. We live in the bad place. There is no way that God came down to us, so they rejected the physical reality. There is a tendency in our day to reject the spiritual reality of Christ. And I think there are many who would say, yeah, Jesus was a real man. You know, just watch the Discovery Channel or something, you know, on Jesus. They'll tell you all about it. You know, Jesus was a real man. I mean, obviously, he wasn't God. That, the, you know, that the cult of Christians made that up. But you know, he was a real man. He really probably lived here. We really probably know where he did these things here, probably, maybe. And here's some information that probably, maybe, might be true, but he probably, maybe, really did exist. And that's Jesus. You know, started a you know, worldwide movement. Amazing that a man could do that. There was a man named Albert Schweitzer uh, who went on a quest and he wanted to take everybody with him to find the true, real, historical Jesus, which clearly is not the Jesus we believe in today. There was something called the Jesus Seminar. Trying to look all throughout Scripture to figure out what Jesus actually probably really said and so they went throughout the Gospels and they scratched through most of it and said, Jesus never said that. There's no way Jesus ever did that. He didn't do any of these miracles. Scratch that out. He didn't, definitely didn't raise from the dead. I mean, scratch all that, all that. None of that actually historically happened because that's a spiritual thing and we reject the spiritual. But he probably was a real man. So do you see the, how we've shifted? That they wanted to reject the physical reality. We want to reject the spiritual reality. But then there's another issue for us today, and that is we want to reject reality itself. We want to ob reject objective reality. It's impossible to know whether Jesus really did these things or not, you know. Find the place of agnosticism, which leads you into mysticism, which definitely it goes hand in hand with liberalism which brings things that you may have heard of called the emergent church, the progressive church, deconstructionism, all these new things that are happening that are taking philosophies and mysticism and mixing them with Christianity. Why am I going into detail about this? Because John went into detail about what those heretics were teaching and we need to go in detail about what our heretics are teaching because I don't want you to believe it. I don't want you to think that that's true. I don't want you reading these books, watching these podcasts, hearing these people. Oh, they're popular. They sold a, Rob Bell sells a lot of books, but don't read them. Brian McLaren, don't read them. 
John Dominic Crossan, Richard Rohr. Don't read them. Unless we want to read them for critical analysis to see what things are going on in the world. How do I know that this is coming into the church? Ligonier's 2020 survey. 20% of Americans, 27% of Americans say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. No, excuse me, that's the other way around. 73% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's, that's more impactful, isn't it? 73% say Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's the prevailing thought of the people around you. They believe in a historical Jesus, yes, but he definitely wasn't who you say he is. And even among evangelical Christians, only 38% believe It's hard to to believe, isn't it? What do Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus? Word for word, from jw.org, we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe that he is Almighty God. If you were wondering. That is outside the bounds of what Scripture teaches concerning Jesus Christ. So there is a tendency to embrace, additionally, religious legalism on the other hand. There is a tendency for some to say, I'm not embracing any of that stuff, but instead I follow the Bible and the Bible only. And the Bible says we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't touch that, we shouldn't go here, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't dress this way, we shouldn't listen to that music, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. And all of a sudden you've got all this giant, this big list of rules that's equally as destructive. That's what the Pharisees did. So where do we find ourselves? I didn't realize how much I had here. We got, we got a lot going on this morning. I'd like for us to just transition and kind of just, just look at what's being said in the second part, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up together, okay? So what about, we get that idea of not going outside the bounds of what is true, and we need to protect ourselves from it. We need to know what's being said so that we can be protected from it. We want to know truly who Jesus is according to the scriptures and we want to stick, we want to stand firm and we want to hold one another accountable to what is true. And then it says, and if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And you might say, well, okay. Um, I, I don't know of anybody who's like a teacher that is wanting to stay at my house so luckily this doesn't apply to me uh, because there's not, you know, all these heretical teachers wanting to come and stay at my house so I don't have to worry about this part. Um, wh- what's being said here? Is there anything that applies? Or is there anything that, that, that comes from 2,000 years ago but actually applies to us today? Well, certainly so. Travel and hospitality was a big issue for Rome. How did you primarily travel even at this time? It was by foot, primarily. Travel was still by foot and Rome was creating all these roads. You know that. Rome was creating all these roads to expand their empire. They wanted people to travel because they wanted more trade. They wanted more commerce. They wanted people to stay. They wanted people to spend, just like today, they want people to spend money and they wanted that too. 
but there were all these roads. And so people would travel, and they would travel to buy things. They would travel to send letters, like Epaphroditus, right? Remember how he traveled for Paul? And so they, they would send, they would send uh, their servants to go and do things. But then who, who else would travel? Teachers to spread their thoughts and their ideas and their philosophies. If you were poor and you didn't have any friends and no one liked you, which may or may not be you, I'm not sure. But you wouldn't have anybody to stay with because no one would welcome you into their home. And so you had to stay in an inn. And these inns were horrible places. You would be robbed. You, there would be, it was, not, it was so disgusting. You would not want to step foot in there. There were places of sin, wickedness, so at all costs, you would want to not stay in an inn. And the believing community knew this, and they didn't want any of the brothers and sisters staying in an inn, okay? We don't have to be too creative with our thoughts to know what it's like. I don't want you to stay there. Listen, stay with one of us, but don't stay there. And so in the believing community, practicing hospitality with anyone who says, I am a believer in Christ, you need to welcome them in. Welcome them in. Let them stay with you. It's an open invitation. We don't have to, be, we don't have to know each other yet. We don't, there has, you don't have to have any kind of money or reputation. or any, any, you, ha, you have to have nothing. If you're a believer, you say you're a believer, come stay with me. My door's open. This was hospitality, but it was also a Roman concept. It was, it was Roman hospitality at play. But to welcome someone into your home was to take claim of them and to take responsibility for them. So you come stay in my home because you're traveling. Whatever you did comes back on me. You take responsibility for them. So whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever you teach comes back on me. Don't welcome them into your home if they are not teaching what is according with the truth because you take part in their wicked works. Do you see it? You actually take part in that because you're giving them a place to stay. They can be around here in this area. They can spread their false teachings. You need to have nothing to do with that. Take no part in their wicked works. Hospitality, we can find Christian hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 8, Romans 12, 13, Romans 13, 1 and 2. I'll just read that one for you. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Right? We know what that's in reference to, don't we? You know, Abraham and Sarah hosting the three men, and they didn't, whoa, what's going on here? You're someone who I didn't think you would be. So you see the importance of hosting. But don't host the heretics. Don't welcome in something that's going to bring down the church of Jesus Christ. Don't welcome something into your home that's going to destroy you and there we have it don't welcome in things into your home that are going to be destructive to you are there things in your life that you could welcome into your home maybe it's not a person but maybe it's a teaching maybe it's a concept maybe it's a source of entertainment maybe it's something that you can that you can welcome into your home that you know is only being destructive to your home and you welcome that thing in don't welcome in things into your home or into your church, certainly, that you know is destructive. But instead, be on guard. Do not even give them a greeting, a happy hello. Don't even say it to them. Have nothing to do with it. 
I have so much more here, but uh, <clears throat> evidently I, I had a lot that I didn't that I didn't know that I had. So um, there is a lot here, and I think we're going to pick up next week and uh, maybe look a little bit more in, into detail of what this might hold for us. But what I want you to take take with you today is this: is that we live in a world where there is so much around us that wants to seep in and destroy us. And I hope that you can see from this text that we need to be more careful. That we need to be careful about the world that we live in. We need to open our eyes also and realize we don't live in a little bubble. Okay, we, we don't have this amazing, you know, uh, protection over us. I was saying to the band earlier, you know, why doesn't God just create kind of like a dome, a force field around the church and those kind of people can't enter. You know, they can't bring us down. Why doesn't God do that? God has sovereignly chosen to allow them to remain in this world. And he has told us to be careful. Don't let these teachings come in and destroy you. Don't welcome them in. Not everything is correct. There are many things not according to the truth and we need to be on guard against them. So please understand that today. Take that with you. Um, I, I want to end just with, one, uh, just with one passage here. Just quickly turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We'll end with this passage. Acts chapter 20, start in verse 26. context here. Paul is having to flee because uh, he's going around preaching the gospel and he's in big trouble and they're trying to say, Paul, get out of here before you get killed. And so before he leaves the area, he calls together the, uh, he calls together the elders of the church in Ephesus. Where is Ephesus located? In Asia Minor. It's where John lived the rest of his life. It's where John is most likely writing Second John from is Ephesus. So he gathers together the elders of the church of Ephesus and Paul addresses them and listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you and admonish everyone with tears. Do you hear Paul's heart for the church there? Would you say that this is a common thought of churches in our day? That they are just so concerned with what is being said and what is being taught and the theology of our songs. Oh, that is, that might, that might have to be a sermon all in itself. I'm not sure, but the theology of the songs in most churches is horrible. It is not biblical doctrine. It is something else entirely. And we learn from our songs and we sing them to God. And why would we ever say something to God that's not true? But yet, here the songs are. We're not being careful. We're not being alert as God has told us to be. But I want you to know why I take this so seriously. I take this seriously because the scriptures tell me as an elder of this church to take this seriously. Seriously. 
Why? Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. There is a job that God has given me to make sure that I'm being careful for the flock that God has given. And I want us to be protected from the fierce wolves and from those who are coming in and for those who want to tell us things that are false. I want us to be protected. I want us all to be safe. We are all sheep of God, yes. And we need to be protected. I want you to be protected. I want you to know the truth. I hope you know this to be true, which is why we sing what we sing. It's not because it sounds good. It's because it's according to the truth. We try to make it sound good. I hope you realize that. We try to make it sound good. Doesn't always work. Hey, we try, we do our best, but we're singing truth to God. We're celebrating the truth of God. And we preach from the word of God because this is what we need. We need the word. You need the word. You need to know it. You need to be protected from the world because what you believe matters. What you believe matters. It matters to me. And if it matters to me, how much more does it matter to our God? Let's pray together.